When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chastley. This is First Move. Welcome to First Move this Thursday. Great to be with you as always. And I can tell you there's not a moment to lose. We have a jam-packed show coming up. Let me give you a look. We've got the chairman of biotech firm Moderna on their race for a vaccine. We've also got the president of entertainment and event giant Live Nation. And in just a couple of minutes time, the CEO of pharma giant AstraZeneca as the U.S. government makes a huge billion dollar plus bet on vaccine research for now. The reasons we cling to the hope of a swift vaccine to help. John Hopkins University says there are now more than 5 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 worldwide. The World Health Organization reporting the biggest daily jump in global cases yesterday. Wow. In the meantime, here in the United States, the fallout continues. A further 2.4 million Americans filing Fresh claims for unemployment benefits last week. Now more than 38 million people have been furloughed, have lost a job or now face job insecurity. This just in the past two months alone. What this number does not tell us, however, is how many people are slowly being added back to the workforce. So key to watch now to continuing claims, the number of people actually getting benefits. Those, in fact, rose by a further two and a half million claims to a record 25 million people in the week before last. U.S. futures are lower, taking back some of Wednesday's gains. A war of words and tweets between China and the United States. Once again, a key focus. All the details coming up, but I do want to get straight to the drivers. We have a lot to cover. Christine Romans, it doesn't matter how many times I see these numbers, I still won't believe them. The scale of the challenge that people face now, but also the scale of the challenge in getting these people back to work somehow. Claims number like you or Julia to be up two and a half million. You'd like to see some people starting to be reabsorbed into the labor market and, and you just aren't yet. Two things here. You've got a backlog of people who've been applying for unemployment benefits. We know the states have been just crushed their infrastructure with handling unemployment claims. So that's part of the reason why you have so many. These might be claims today that were layoffs a few weeks ago. Uh, The second part of this is the fear of a second wave of layoffs. Now that you've had nine weeks in a row of numbers like this for, for consumers, for workers, that's two months now of 
of, of car payment, of house payment, of rent payment that have been missed or have been barely made. And you have some employers who might be starting a second wave of layoffs here because they just don't see exactly when there will be a healthy, robust reopening of the economy. We're seeing some reopening around around the edges, but you know, a full reopening of the economy isn't here yet. So there could be this other wave of layoffs that's happening right now. And we paid such attention this week to the automakers reopening like Ford, like GM, like Fiat Chrysler and Ford already having to, as it tests people, temporarily shut down facilities to quickly clean them and try and get them back up and running again. One, the importance of testing to the challenges, the health challenges of getting back to work. And these companies, leadership from these companies is going to be key. They right. want to get their people working. They want their production lines uh, moving. And they want to do it safely because if it isn't safe, then it defeats the whole purpose. So I think you will see rigorous cleaning. I think you'll see testing. You'll see contact tracing. You'll see, like we saw with Ford uh, in, in the last 48 hours, a quick shutdown, quick cleaning, rejiggering and then reopening. And I think that's going to be fits and starts for the reopening of some of these uh, industries. You know, they're going to be, people will be six feet apart at least. You're going to have to reconfigure assembly lines so you don't have three people working on one machine or one uh, one station. What's interesting about the Ford issue as well, Julie, I think, is that um, they've been out of work for two months. So that infection came from outside of the factory. So now as people start coming back into the workforce, companies are going to be very careful about making sure that it's not spread from the community that comes to their sterile work environments. And that ties right back to the heart of what we've seen today, these initial benefit claims. Bringing people back is going to be a slow process too, for safety reasons. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Now on to a war of words and tweets between Washington and Beijing. President Trump tweeting, Spokesmen speak stupidly on behalf of China, trying desperately to deflect the pain and carnage that their country spread throughout the world. Its disinformation and propaganda attack on the United States and Europe is a disgrace. It all comes from the top. They could have easily stopped the plague, but they didn't. It comes as the U.S. Senate passed a bill yesterday that could delist some Chinese companies from U.S. exchanges. Ivan Watson is in live in Hong Kong for us. Ivan, that was the US president seemingly directly criticizing President Xi. The shift again in sentiment from the Senate looking to take direct action on China and of course, right before the National People's Congress tomorrow. Ouch. Yeah, well, I mean, pick your cliche. Is this a war of words, a scold war, tit for tat rhetoric? But it goes on. You have the foreign ministries of both countries that continue kind of lobbing these insults and criticisms back and forth. Uh, Today, the Chinese foreign ministry singled out U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, calling him an extremely irresponsible politician, saying that his numerous lies have bankrupted his credibility in the world, and also going after something that I think the Trump administration is quite sensitive about, their own record on dealing with the coronavirus pandemic within the U.S., which has claimed more than 90,000 lives. Take a listen to what the foreign ministry spokesperson had to say today. With regard to COVID-19, the Secretary of State of the United States, Mr. Pompeo, should tell the world why the U.S. government didn't take strong prevention and control measures between January and March why it was for such a long time against people wearing masks, and why it failed to stem the fast spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. 
he has a responsibility to explain to the world. Now, the simmering tensions, Julia, have bubbled over into other areas. Taiwan, for example, with the Trump administration announcing that it had plans uh, for a major arms deal, about $180 million selling uh, high-weight torpedoes uh, to that self-governing region, which China views as a breakaway uh, part of its own territory. And Hong Kong, with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo criticizing the arrests last April of a number of moderate uh, politicians who are critical of the government in Beijing and the crackdown over the course of the last year here in Hong Kong. Uh, Beijing has lashed out saying that this is U.S. interference into uh, China's uh, domestic internal affairs and, and saying basically cut it out. One of the big questions is, at what point, as these two governments continue hurling insults at each other, does this start to go further? Does this put in jeopardy the first phase of this trade deal that both leaders had agreed to verbally at the end of last year? Or could it ramp up tensions in places like the South China Sea, where warships from both navies shadow each other and often come quite close to each other? And I guess we'll just have to see where it goes from here. Julia. Yes, your point about a scold war, as we've talked about in the past, is so valid. But we are seeing action on the U.S. side here. The question is, to your point, what does China do to follow? A real collision of cultures, I think, of misunderstandings going on here. Ivan Watson, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, big news from pharma giant AstraZeneca this morning. The firm has agreed a vaccine supply deal worth over $1 billion with the United States. AstraZeneca, which is working with researchers at Oxford University, will initially supply 400 million doses and has secured capacity to produce up to 1 billion doses. Subject to trial results, the first deliveries could come as early as September. I'm excited to say joining us now, AstraZeneca CEO Pascal Sorio. Pascal, fantastic to uh, have you with us and congratulations on this deal. A huge bet from the United States on the success of this vaccine. Yes, good morning, Julia. It is a bet indeed, uh, but it's also showing that war speed is working and uh, that the U.S. government and in particular Secretary Eza are leading. They are leading for the American people, but they're also leading uh, the world. Um, this is a bet, but if you look at it, the investment is absolutely worth it relative to the economic damage, the social damage and the medical damage this, this uh, epidemic, this pandemic is uh, inflicting on everybody. I couldn't agree more with you, sir. Just talk me through timings here in terms of deliveries to the UK, deliveries to the United States. And I mentioned the September date. How soon could we have substantial mass produced doses in each of these countries? Well, we will start getting substantial doses by September, October. Um, and I would say about 30 percent of our deliveries will take place uh, starting in September, October and the balance will arrive by December, January. Uh, so a very, very short uh, timeline, if you will, and, and lots, lots and lots of people will be able to be vaccinated before the end of the year. Wow, so based on that timeline and the numbers that we're talking about here, again, if this vaccine is successful, we could have the entire UK population, the entire US population potentially vaccinated by early next year. Yeah, first of all, we, as you said, it has to work, right? I mean, so we should remember that uh, 
it is of course not a guarantee that it will work. We have very good hope and we are confident there's good reasons for it to work and that's why we are committing ourselves to it and moving so fast. Um, but it has to work and if it works we'll be indeed able to vaccinate a lot of people. The truth is you don't have to vaccinate the entire population. You tend to focus on the population at risk, the healthcare workers, the people who have underlying conditions and then over time you can vaccinate uh, a greater proportion of the population uh, and then you stop the disease when you get to about two-thirds of the population that is immune to this virus. Developing herd immunity, um, to your point, sir, you reiterated there a few times that this vaccine may not work. Can we just get a sense of, I know you're seeing human trials at the moment, we're then potentially talking about deliveries in September. Is that enough time between ending trials and getting these vaccines out for use? We're talking yes, you know, weeks. Yeah, actually, you know, we are actually trailblazing here because we are not following the standard process. We are partnering with regulators, both in the UK and in the US. We're working hand in hand with the FDA. We're sharing data uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, on a real-life basis. And, and basically, they're committing, committed themselves to help look at our data as they come, available, so that by the time we finish with our phase three program in, in August, they can rapidly approve the, the, the vaccine for emergency use. Are you worried that we haven't, because of the desperate need, taken enough time to challenge the virus, to make sure that it's something that will work and that we can trust? I would say we are not cutting corners. We are actually moving fast because of this partnership between the regulators and, and uh, the Oxford group and ourselves. Um, but we're not cutting corners. We're doing the clinical work that needs to be done. We've done the preclinical work. We're now doing phase one, two. We're going to do phase two, three. So it's a completely standard program. It just happens that it, it's done very quickly with a lot of resources involved, a lot of passion, a lot of focus, and a great collaboration with the FDA in the US and the MHRA in the UK. This is a global problem. You're talking about one billion doses, which is exceptional, but we have, what, just under eight billion population. How does the licensing deal work? Can we see other big manufacturers around the world, Pfizer maybe, some of your biggest competitors, also ramping up production at the same time if this vaccine is successful? Yes, but you know, I think in this instance we are competing against the virus, not against each other. Uh, we at, uh, at AstraZeneca are doing this as a, as a, for no, no profit, uh, and I'm sure other, uh, other manufacturers will do the same. And we need several vaccines. So we're not really competing against uh, one another. We're really trying to bring several vaccines so we can vaccinate as many people around the world as possible. Uh, one vaccine will not be enough, number one. And number two, I think society needs to bet on two or three different technologies. So to add your bet and make sure at least one, maybe two, maybe three type of technologies uh, succeed. So here we are really all trying to do the same thing, which is to bring a solution to this terrible pandemic. Yeah, everyone trying to do their best. So fantastic to chat to you. Fingers crossed. Thank you to all your team, because I'm sure you're all working 24-7 and are doing extraordinary things. And we appreciate it. Great to chat to you. Yeah, thanks, Julia. Thank you. All right, let's move on. These are some of the stories making headlines around the world. 
More than 80 people are dead after Cyclone Amphan ravaged eastern India and Bangladesh. The chief minister of the hard-hit Indian state of West Bengal says she never seen such destruction before. The officials say she will appeal to the government in New Delhi for help. Brazil is reporting almost 20,000 new cases of COVID-19 on Wednesday, the highest daily tally so far. The country now has the third highest number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the world. Almost 19,000 people have died from the virus. The need for a vaccine on a global basis. Now, we're going to continue this conversation. Still to come, Moderna's medicine. We speak to the company's chairman about their vaccine efforts. And dialing up digital sportswear, Nike applies lessons learned in China to opening up in the United States. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Just a few minutes to go before the opening bell this morning. Let me give you a look at U.S. stocks because we are looking at a slightly lower open. We've also got the latest on the benefit, the unemployment claims here in the United States. More than 38 million Americans have now signed up for jobless benefits since mid-March, a rise of 2.4 million people in just the last week alone. And the latest read on continuing claims, those that people that are already claiming benefits, show businesses have been slow in bringing people back to work. In the meantime, a new reading on Philadelphia area manufacturing shows activity bouncing from a 40-year low, of course as a result of the shutdown this month, but still deep in contraction territory. And new data from Europe also shows a rise in manufacturing this month, albeit after a historically sharp contraction. Challenges, of course, to reopening. Now, investors, as we've been talking about already on the show, laser-focused on news from vaccine developers. Well, U.S. biotech firm Moderna delivered a big boost to sentiment on Monday when it claimed there were promising early results for its vaccine in a small human trial. However, some experts began asking questions about the data provided, or at least the lack of it. That dampened some of the earlier optimism. Still, Analysts at Morgan Stanley out today saying it assumes a 65% chance Moderna's vaccine will work. Well, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Moderna's chairman, Anubar Afayan. He's also the CEO of Flagship Pioneering, which refers to itself as Life Sciences Innovation Enterprise. So fantastic to, uh, to have you on the show. Lots of questions, clearly lots of hope with regards to vaccine development at this moment. Can I start by just asking you why you didn't provide data with the press release earlier this week? Well, thanks for having me on uh, today. Um, the, the press release uh, announced interim results from a phase one trial with humans, 45 subjects. And in fact, we did release interim top line data, which is quite customary by all pharmaceutical and biotech companies under circumstances when there's an ongoing trial, the conclusion of which has not been reached and the publication has not yet been made, but to communicate what we know so far. And what we communicated was that across all 45 people that were dosed at three different dose levels, we saw antibody levels at or above the antibody levels that are seen in convalescent plasma from recovering patients. We also reported all the data that we had up until that point, which was that in the first four subjects in the two cohorts, so altogether eight of them, the antibodies were in fact neutralizing to the virus that we're targeting. And that's the data that we had 
as of Monday morning that we released. Now, I think everyone has to keep in mind that this is a trial that we're doing jointly with the NIH, the, particularly the NIAID component. This is the infectious disease a group of experts at the NIH. And the data is being collected by them. It's held by them. And we shared what we had available to us. We have also said since that we expect publication of that data and also the animal work that we referred to in our release quite shortly in a matter of a couple of weeks as opposed to months. So there's a couple of questions there. To your point, you, you shared data on the neutralizing antibodies for eight patients. What about the other patients? Are you collecting data on those and, and that's what will be shared in a couple of weeks? Why not wait until of you course. have more data rather than just the eight? Of course, of course. So look, it's, it's, it's typical in the biotech industry if there is a material amount of data to issue interim results. This is, anyone who's been in this sector will know that this is done customarily. We did so in full concert with our partners at the NIH. Uh, the fact that across all 45 people we have seen levels of antibody that are at or above what in infected patients we witness, as well as in eight out of the eight that have been tested so far, we see neutralizing antibodies. It was felt that that was something that we should communicate publicly as a public company. We did so. We gave all the specifications of what was to come next. And as the complete data set is gathered, which is being done absolutely on every, uh, every patient, every subject that is, that will be published in the normal course. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, as I said, that will be imminent. So I think the decision uh, of materiality and disclosure is one that companies do with, with the proper analysis. In our case, that's what we did. And we decided that this was important information to communicate. Keep yeah, in mind, we should, governments... We should make the point. Yes, everything please, about this is extraordinary. Everything about this process is extraordinary, which I think is the point that you're making. I just want to ask a quick question. I apologize for interrupting, but you mentioned sure. the point that you were comparing the neutralizing antibody levels to recovering patients. Can you give us the comparison? What is the benchmark there? Because one of the big concerns about the antibodies that we've seen from, from patients that have recovered is the levels are so different. Some are very low, some are very high. What was your benchmark for comparison? Look, we are in the partnership with the NIH relying on the expertise that our collaborators have and the access they have to data from a number of sources um, what you're referring to about variable levels of antibodies stems from pre-publications of papers that are coming from different uh, places around the world. There's very few such data available. And I would say that it's by no means a medical certainty that patients are exhibiting different levels of antibody. It is the case that in a few, equivalent number of few people, people have quickly put out preprints saying there may be differences. We are relying on the totality of the data that our partners have communicated. And what they have said is that these levels of antibodies are at or above the levels that we are seeing in convalescent plasma. And, and to some extent, we take, we take their representation of that. Uh, and, and as this is published further, there'll be much more data made available. But you're right, this is a fast developing set of facts. And of course, amidst that situation, you're always gonna have some people we're going to question no matter what anybody says right. because it's just not knowable. So the choice is either some, someone says nothing 
and, and, and we just kind of wait till a vaccine is approved, or at various points we share what we have and we allow people to make decisions based on that information. Yeah, you're right, and human lives are at stake, whether it's through the, the virus that we're fighting here or, or the vaccine, so there's, there's gonna be debate on, on all sides. Talk to me about moving ahead here. Do you feel like there's some degree of pressure, whether it's governmental pressure, whether it's just simply because this virus is causing devastation to, to be on the front foot? Is there a race being created here or are we all racing at the same time and together? Um, I think you've heard this uh, in the past. We've said this certainly for the last three months. Our only race is a race against the virus. This is a disease that is really kind of uh, pitting the collective immune system of all of humanity against a predator that is attacking us based on our social nature. That's what this is all about. It's at the end of the day, a natural competition, however unnatural it feels to us, but it is a natural competition between a virus that has evolved to spread based on our social contact and our immune system that is seeing it for the first time and needs to react. The, the quarantine separation steps that have been taken are a temporary measure to give our immune system a chance and our technology a chance to be able to wage a, a successful battle. And of course, that situation, the moment, puts a lot of pressure on everybody who decides to get engaged, just like the frontline medical workers. I think that the entire biotechnology enterprise that's going after this type of rapid development feels a sense of urgency. I also would comment, you mentioned hope. This is a word that's been going around quite a bit of late. You know, my view is that hope is something that the situation is causing people to search for, to want. All we can do is to provide a basis for the hope. In other words, it's one thing to hope because you're desperate. It's nothing to hope because there's increasing facts. And as the body of evidence comes out from us and others, we hope that the, we, we hope that the hope people have is justified. And that's gonna take a few more months, but we're quite encouraged by the start. And we have to be careful as well that whatever gets produced here ultimately works and that trust isn't broken. We're already seeing in the United States the levels of vaccines for other things being taken, dropping. There's a big anti-vaccine movement here. Trust is critical here too, surely. Trust is critical, and of course, trust benefits from having more and more time to take the necessary safeguards. And, and that is a different form of pressure that's being created because on the one hand, when the economy and when people's lives are being impacted in a way that vaccines might be able to address. And on the other hand, the more safety data we could generate, the more we could be comfortable that the trust people place on technology is justified. At the end of the day, these are decisions that will be made by governments that are elected to represent and protect people. And, and, and we are very much a piece of that, but ultimately these will be country by country decisions that are made uh, with the best information possible. Yeah. Thank you so much to you and your team, of course, everyone working there. Great to have you with us. And we wait Thank for you a for couple having of weeks' us. time. Nibar Fein, the chairman of Moderna. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running this Thursday, as expected. Uh, 
moderate start to the session this morning, or slightly lower, as you can see. This is the U.S. reports that another 2.4 million jobless claims were filed last week. Investors also rattled by escalating rhetoric between the United States and China. But overall, let's be clear, stocks still solidly higher on the week, with small cap stocks in particular showing signs of strength. Now America is reopening for business. COVID-19 restrictions are being rolled back in all 50 states. Good news for Nike. Nearly 40% of the company's sales come from North America. Safety, of course, though, key to this next stage. And this is where the company has an advantage. It's been through this reopening before in areas across Asia, particularly in China. Joining us now, Heidi O'Neill, President of Consumer and Marketplace at Nike. Heidi, great to have you on the show Let's focus in on what you're seeing in Asia, particularly in places like China. You were straight away getting the digital strength of the company up and running there. What are you seeing right now, both digitally and, of course, in store? Great. Good morning, Julia. Yeah, you know, our teams are amazing around the world. And it, it started in China with that team. And, and they were just watching and learning as the uh, pandemic unfolded. And they found right out of the gate that... Our, our employees and their families and our shoppers in China, they needed uh, a way to uh, relax, work out, and, um, and really get fit and stay fit while working from home. So that team hustled and uh, in days, not weeks or months, created some amazing experiences in China to help families stay um, happy, fit, and with a great uh, mindfulness programming as well. And the results have been incredible. Are in China, we saw an 80% increase in monthly active users, and we saw a digital acceleration as well. But it was really great, Julia, to see where the innovations coming out from that China team that were starting to scale around the world. So we learned out of the gates that our consumers and people at home wanted to not just work out at home, but build a community. So we launched live streaming of workouts. We found that they wanted more content. So we had to uh, 2x, 3x our amount of content we were publishing a day. And then once the stores were opened, we learned from China as well. And we saw when stores open, people want to shop and they want to come back. And uh, so we had to quickly launch a digital queuing system that now will be scaling around the world. So We've seen great results and engagement, but we've, and we've also seen China help us innovate for the world. Map that now to what's applicable to the United States. You've obviously got to take care of your workers, gauge that as you bring them back into stores, but also trying to promote the kind of levels of, of digital access, shopping, let's be clear, in the United States, as we're already seeing in really digital savvy markets like China. Sure, yeah. Well, um, in the U.S., what we're doing, and, and we're, we'll, we'll actually be doing this globally as well, is staying focused on um, making sport a daily habit. That's our mission at Nike, and I, you know, I don't think that mission has ever been more important. Even with us staying at home, maybe especially with us staying at home, we need to work out more than ever. So in the U.S., we have made our Nike Training Club app free for all consumers. It's a subscription service that um, we will keep free for the unforeseeable future. And we've added 185 programs on Nike Training Club. We have uh, all lengths on uh, the Nike Training Club app from, uh, from 15 minutes to 60 minutes. 
and um, all different types of workout from uh, from high intensity to big workouts for small spaces. My favorite right now are some of the short ab classes I'm doing in my long uh, Zoom days. And we're seeing great results there. We're seeing triple digit growth with our members and and we're, uh, we also are Nike Run Club. We have created a treadmill run and an audio guided run so that um, even if you're running alone, uh, you feel like you're not running alone. And Julia, all this is translating to really strong digital business as well. We're seeing over triple digit increase in our um, Nike app revenue as we connect our digital experiences and platforms for our yeah. members. Yeah, I saw some of the women's digital business as well, up more than 40% in, in Q3 as well. So it is driving sales, which is, um, which is important. Very quickly, because I have about a minute, talk to me about protecting workers, what this means. It begins when they get up in the morning and they commute into, into the business. How will you make a decision based on what workers you need in the beginning? Is it simply going to be how many shoppers you get through the doors? Yeah, well, you mentioned it earlier that we really do have a great playbook with China and with the doors open there, and we've learned a lot. We've learned how to keep our employees and our shoppers safe, and essentially what we're doing is using a combination of incredible cleaning protocol uh, for our stores as well as tech, and we're providing our employees in the store a, a really solid tech foundation to help shoppers uh, shop in a contactless manner if they'd like through self-checkout, through curbside contactless pickup, and uh, through one of my favorite services called Click and Try, where you can just scan a barcode on a mannequin and uh, and find out everything you need uh, in that mannequin and have it brought to you or taken directly to the fitting room. So we're providing our shoppers and our employees with some great new tech and services to make it easier and um, to make sure we keep that social distance. It's a whole new way of shopping. Very quickly, Heidi, I've just realized I've got to ask you about The Last Dance. Michael Jordan, ESPN, people haven't watched it, they really have to. What's this meant for Nike? Because you, the tick and Michael Jordan are synonymous. What has this meant for the brand? You know, well, I've had uh, I've had some fun Zoom calls with Michael Jordan over this uh, period, and and you know, we are so excited to see that uh, people, when sport is paused, are tuning in to with the love of Jordan basketball and sneakers, and back to our digital ecosystem. We talked about our our sneakers app is on fire um, with the Last Dance and all of the energy, and in fact. Julia, we just uh, had a launch of the Air Jordan Fire Red where we sold out in seven minutes um, right during the last dance. So, uh, you know, we're seeing communities building and energy around the sport and, and around love for sneakers as well. Yeah, what a winner. He's very welcome. Next time you Zoom him, he's very welcome on the show. I know, <laughs> I know. It was, it was a big day in the O'Neill house. <laughs> Heidi, great to chat to you. Heidi O'Neill, president of Consumer Marketplace at Nike there. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. Coming up, a blast from the past. Rock concerts with crowds packed shoulder to shoulder have no place in our current reality. The president of Live Nation Entertainment, though, tells me how live events are changing and adapting so the show can go on after this. Welcome back to First Move. With lockdown and social distancing, it's hard to fathom how to hold a live event with a big audience. Well, 
first tentative steps are being taken. It's thought this might be the first live in-person concert since the pandemic hit. It was a small audience, all of them temperature checked, watched Travis McCready play in Arkansas. And artists are live streaming gigs. The performance by the Head and the Heart attracted 130,000 people. It was laid on by Live Nation, the largest live entertainment company in the world, which also owns Ticketmaster. 74,000 of its events were impacted, but the company says over 90% of ticket holders are waiting for rescheduled shows instead of refunds. And yet 80% of fans say they expect to be going back to shows within four months. And therein lies the challenge. Joe Birchtold is a president of Live Nation and he joins me now. Joe, great to have you with us. That's a lot of optimism from people who've worked hard to get those tickets that they intend to keep hold of them and um, go at some point in the future. Yeah, good morning, Julia. Thanks for having me on. No question, right now we're in a point of disruption. As you said, over 70,000 events have been either postponed or canceled because of this. But the one thing we know is the fans want to go to concerts. There's massive demand. Everything we've seen from, as you said, people holding on to their tickets to the surveys we did, we've done. Just glo- we just did one globally, over 10,000 fans, over 90% were saying they can't wait to get back to concerts uh, across the world. And we expect that as we can come out of this, the fans will be there, the artists are going to be there. And uh, as we get into 2021, we expect to be back full force holding concerts. Talk to me about what happens between now and 2021, because this is the key. I know you've already started the drive-ins in Denmark that we've seen, but small events are one thing. How do you go back to filling the O2? Do you do that in 2020? Yeah, I th- you're right. I think in 2020, what we're going to see is slow steps. We operate in 40 countries, over 100 cities, so every market is different, and every month is different in every market. So. Our philosophy is we're going to follow the facts and the science. We're not the doctors. We're going to listen to the public health officials in each market, figure out what's right for that market. So in Denmark, as you said, we've launched a series of over 60 drive-ins. We had our first one the other day with over 600 cars coming. We've done similar events in the States. We expect in Spain, in New Zealand, in Austria, even getting into the UK over the next few months, we'll be doing properly social distance concerts, and that'll be drive-ins, it'll be large venues with a handful of people, it'll be virtual concerts where we have artists on stage and people are watching virtually from their homes, a whole range of events that can allow fans and artists to stay connected. We think it's important that we continue the live event, we continue the music getting to fans in this period until we can ramp up and get back to the more normal situation next year. Can you make money doing that, Joe, or is this just about breaking even at best? Yeah, our our business model absolutely is 30 to 40,000 concerts a year for 70 to 100 million fans globally. And we make our money as we put on the concert by by selling the beer when people go to the show, the sponsorship with the advertisers, the ticketing fees, that's how that's our business model. That's how we make money. It's been very successful growing over the past decade. In the next six months, we're not gonna have that sort of scale, that level of activity. But we do believe it is our responsibility as the leading live entertainment company in the world to bring those fans and those artists together. We don't expect it's gonna drive huge economics for us this year, but we do think it's very important. Again, all of our surveys 
say the fans want to stay connected to music. They want to get connected to the artists. They want to have a feeling that they are getting out of their homes in some way, either actually or virtually. And so we think it's our responsibility to continue to provide those opportunities. We think there could be some interesting business opportunities that come out of it. Uh, we're seeing greater and greater interest in the notion of a virtual concert, and that may provide an additional business opportunity for us going forward. But first and foremost, we want to keep the music going. Yeah, I mean, we need engagement and culture more than ever, quite frankly, at this moment. Um, Joe, I want to ask you very quickly, legal risk. Do businesses such as yourselves need some formal of, form of legal protection in case people do catch the virus when they're at these kind of events? Do you think as, as I said, we're, yeah, we're operating in, in such a broad range of countries and markets and we are following the process that we think is right. We're not trying to rush things. We're working with the public health officials to follow the guidelines that make sense in each market as fans start to come back to shows. And I think it's our expectation that we as a business, we need to know we can do that. If we're following the rules set out by the public health officials, we're like everybody else, the airlines, the hotels and so on. We need to be comfortable that we can then do that and not be exposed to massive lawsuits. So hopefully those issues will get resolved and so we can all start to take, take steps towards a more normal. Yeah, challenging times, but we'll get through it. Joe, fantastic to chat to you. Stay in touch, please, sir, and stay safe. Joe Bertram, President of Live Nation, great to chat to you. All right, up next, we're taking to the skies, but we're doing it in masks. CNN gets exclusive access to Dubai Airport as Emirates resumes passenger flights. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The coronavirus pandemic has crippled the airline industry around the world, but Dubai-based Emirates Airlines is hoping to rebound by resuming passenger flights out of the UAE to nine cities beginning Thursday. The airline's COO says it's time to move out of lockdown. The most important thing is that uh, we all know aviation, it is very important element in any uh, country and is the link between one city to many cities in the world. And in particular in United Arab Emirates, we want to connect Dubai and United Arab Emirates to all the globe. And by Emirates taking this lead is to give confidence and to send a strong message to the rest of other uh, countries in the airline. There is, we need to start. We cannot continue to be in the lockdown process. John Defterius joins us now. Bold leadership, John, how are they going to do this? You know, it's interesting, Julia, to watch this nine-city experiment get off the ground here because, according to Emirates, the demand was higher than expected on the first day, a 30 to 50 percent capacity. The latter number was in the higher classes of travel, so that's encouraging that there was pent-up demand. But they're not being shy about the idea that why cannot they not lead this process going forward? In fact, the uh, feedback they're getting from the polling data of their customers is that we trust your protocols and we'd rather have have you lead us than the governments around the world, uh, which are giving confusing messages. Now, I'm on the top of headquarters. We can see behind me uh, Terminal 3. They don't like to see parked planes. Uh, one executive said today, look, we usually handle 250 flights a day, not less than 10. That's the condition they're in uh, right now. And we have to put Emirates into context as well, Julie, I think, because 
it's not just a carrier. Dubai is built around it. The trade links to Africa, to Asia, to Europe and to the Americas were centered around this carrier for better than three decades. So that's why they're willing to step out a bit here. It represents a third of GDP. So if they can be the first ones out and say, look, we've established the protocols. We're willing to adapt the protocols as we move forward. That's OK. In fact, they adjusted one today. Yesterday, they said you had to be here four hours before the flight. Today, it was three hours and they're serving hot meals already when they had box servings uh, planned before. It's fascinating, isn't it? And to your point, so critical to the economy that you have to get moving here and balance the risks. What are staff saying about this, John? Well, it's a whole new world inside the terminal, Julia. We're there for about 12 hours today, starting about 5.30 in the morning. I spoke to one uh, cabin crew member, and I said, what's going to be like you wearing this uh, shield, this uh, clear shield, and a disposable robe, basically, uh, for PPE on on the flight? She said, look, if it rebuilds confidence with our consumers, it's not natural for us. I never thought I would have to do so, uh, but it's worth it. They're going to put another staff on board just for sanitation, to clean the washrooms and the rest of the cabin. Again, that's unusual and it's uh, innovative at, at the same time. And if you go into the thermal, Julia, it's amazing. You've got to take a thermal test. There's social distancing. There's plexiglass at check-in, plexiglass at immigration. It is the new normal. And even passengers were saying, I've got the gloves and the mask. I'm not crazy about wearing them. You have to wear the mask on the plane. But if it allows me to fly, and the one passenger I spoke to who caught my attention uh, is from Milan. She's been parked here for three months because of the situation in northern Italy. And she says, I'd rather fly, live it under these guidelines. And even after living here for three months, I can trust the brand to step out into the market again. Fascinating confidence. Whatever it is, consumer confidence, staff confidence, together, that's how we get moving again. Critical in a health crisis. John, great work. Thank you. And you look very nice in your suit and the handkerchief. Love it. John oh, thanks. Thank you. Yes, thank you. All right. The travel and tourism industries have taken a huge hit from the pandemic, as I mentioned. Well, Richard Quest is going to be taking a special look at tourism in crisis. He'll be speaking to top airline and hotel CEOs, as well as tourism ministers from some of the countries that rely the most on visitors. That's tonight, Thursday night at 8 p.m. London time, 9 p.m. in Paris. Do not miss that. All right, that just about wraps up First Move for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you then. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.